Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. We're in Genesis chapter four, this last half. Imagine that you're at the headwaters of the Mississippi. They're really small. It's just, uh, you can step across it, I understand. I've never seen it, but uh, and when you're at the headwaters and then you launch a boat, say, like some of the early pioneers that came to our country from other places, then you can traverse the river and you can see where it goes and how it develops and how it widens. What we're gonna look at today is we're at the headwaters of humanity. We're at the headwaters of civilization. And we're gonna watch it take its course and begin to take its course and spread out. And we're gonna be able to track it just a little bit over these next few chapters in the book of Genesis. Imagine now toxic fluid being dumped in upstream. Uh, well, it's going to contaminate everything downstream. That's what it'll do. Everything above that's okay, but everything below it's going to be uh, contaminated. What we're going to see is how sin, we talked about that being kind of an exclusive church word of turning our backs on God and living independently of him and what kind of chaos that created for humanity through Adam and Eve and then through Cain. We're going to see that spread and begin to float downstream and it brings contamination with it. It's pretty, it's pretty strong. Now Cain, son of Adam and Eve, he, um, he was not believing God. He was not trusting God. He brought God uh, a, a gift in worship, and God didn't like it as much as Abel's. Abel came by faith, and um, God gently said, you know, I, I'm not, you're not in the right place. It made him so mad. Rather than turn to God and say, oh, how could I fix that? How could I correct that? He got mad. And then what did he do? He asked his brother to go on a hike. Hey, let's go for a hike. And he killed him violently. It's just the two of them. Didn't shoot him from a long way off. It's hand to hand, very likely. That's what all the pictures that painters paint. That's how they envision it. And it's just awful. And God said, you, you know, what have you done? And it's, the ground is, is not going to respond to you. And life's going to be hard. And, and you know what? You're going to wander around. That's what your life's going to be. And Cain's like, well, if anybody bumps into me, they're, they're relatives. They're going to kill me. God said, no, they're not. I'm going to put a mark on you. I don't know what the mark is, okay? We went over that last week. I don't know what it is. And I don't know if it was even visible to Cain. But that's what God said would happen. No one's going to kill you. So I want to look at verse 16 of chapter 4. That's where we ended last week. It says this. So Cain went out from the presence, the Lord's presence, and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now this is just a narrative story, and I'm just going to make some observations as we go. But here's the first observation. You don't have to be in Eden to be in the presence of the Lord. He left the presence, and he's not in Eden. You might remember that Adam and Eve were told to go east of Eden when they were excluded from being in the garden. Now he's going even further east, and he is deliberately leaving the presence of God. And when we choose to distance ourselves from God, um, it's going it's gonna, it's gonna to lead to some problems. Because we won't have him there. He chooses to leave. And I think his geographical distance represents his moral distance. The further he gets away geographically, the further he's away from God. He is east of Eden. And 
And maybe that's why John Steinbeck used that phrase for the title of his book, East of Eden, 1952. It was his opus. And it would later become a movie, 1956, with James Dean. And it would be reproduced as a movie or a story or a play many times over. Netflix did one just a few years ago. What about the story is so compelling? It's about two families falling apart in, in moral decay. Well, we, we love the story. I'm not sure. Maybe we look at it and go, that ain't, my, my family's not that bad. <laughs> Maybe we just feel good about it. But we never learn the lesson of, of the origin of the story. The further away from God we get, the more life is going to be difficult. It's going gonna, it's gonna to end in a distorted reality. It's going to end in the destruction of relationships. It's going to end in the decay of the family. It's going to end in death. And that's what we see play out in Cain's life. So as we, as we start, here's what I need you to see. There's going to be two lines. There's going to be Cain's line, and then we're going to see Seth come into the picture. One is ungodly, one is more godly. Now, I don't want to just say one is bad and one is good, but this is their juxtapose. So we start with Cain. In your outline, we have this. In Cain's lineage, they sought security and significance without God. They've sought security and significance without God. What's my basis for that? Well, we'll develop it here. Verse 17, Cain made love to his wife. She became pregnant. She gave birth to Enoch. Cain was building, was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. Now, we don't know how much time has passed. We don't know who he married. Uh, probably a close relative, since it's just a couple people on the planet. And he is experiencing what theologians call common grace. It's the grace that's just poured out to humanity. He's got a family. And he's got a son. He names him Enoch. Now, many of you have heard that name. He's not the good Enoch. There's two. There's going to be another one in chapter 5 from a different line. But this is Cain's Enoch, and he names his, fam he names his city after that. Now, biblical names, unlike today's names, you know, we hear something like something, imagery, we name a child that. Maybe it's a family name, maybe it's a biblical name, but their names kind of tell a story. So sometimes it's helpful to kind of look at the meaning of the name in, in Hebrew. And so Enoch means to initiate. And I believe it feels like Cain is saying, you know what, we're going to initiate life without God, and we're going to name our city that. I think today, if it was named, it would be called Independence, <laughs> right? Where are you from? We're from Independence. We're all alone there, and we like it that way. And here's the thing. God told him he would to be wandering, and he said, no, I'm not. I'm going to be building. That's my first defiance. And cities of the ancient world, they were built for lots of reasons, but top on that list was security. If you want to be secure, build a city, build a wall, fill it with people, everybody back to each other, can protect themselves. Cain is not wandering, and he's not trusting that God's going to keep him alive. Maybe he can't see the mark, but he doesn't trust God at all. I'm going to defend myself, and I'm going to create my, my own significance and my own uh, protection, my own security. And then in the next few verses, we're going to see a family line trace. Now, if you are big into figuring out all your family members, you kind of want to find them all. Now, in the, in the biblical world, uh, family lines and, and, and this lineage, they don't always represent everybody. They're trying to tell a story. So there are other people involved but this is going to highlight some of the few of the important ones. And the story they're telling is, let's see how civilization and culture begins to emerge. So 18 says this. 
So Anak was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahuzael. Mahuzael was the father of Methusel. Hard for me to say. Methusel was the father of Lemek. Lemek married two women, one named Ada and the other one named Zala. Ada gave birth to Jabal, who was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock, and his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who played string instruments and pipes. Zilla had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and irons, and Tubal Cain had a sister, Nama. Now, we have to look at the names a little bit because they're highlighted. What's, what's going on here? I think it's just a de description of the emergence of civilization and its independence. Irad means city of witness. I want you to, I want you to pay attention to what we're building here. It's an independent city and give witness to the strength of man. This is going to play out all the way to chapter 11 and the building of the Tower of Babel. Mahuzarel is smitten by God. Evidently, the, you know, Cain has complained to Enoch, and Enoch's complained to his kids. God has turned his back on us, which isn't the case. It's kind of what the name means. And way before Nietzsche ever declared God was dead, Methuselah's name means God is dead. And that's what he's saying here. God is dead. We're going to build our city all alone. Limic means strong. In this context, it would have to be independent strength. We're building our city without God. And in this first city, you see all the pieces are there, right? Of modern life. You have travel. You have music. You have art. You have metals. You have political life. You have the domestication of animals. Everything is amazing. And things like this can be used if they come from God for God. But as Cain's story tells, they're going to be used as in a defiance to God. And the results play out. So if you just from what we read, they're going to uh, Cain's lineage is going to produce going to pursue security and they're going to significance by independently building cities and cultures, cities and cultures. Now, cities and cultures are not inherently bad things. You look around the world, there's all kinds of different cultures. And from that, we get the great perspective of a God who is, you know, is creative and diverse. Not only that, when you get to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, it says that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and a new city, the city of the new Jerusalem. So if cities were just inherently bad, we wouldn't be ending up in a city. We'd be ending up in a pasture, I guess, right? It says every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation will be worshiping God. God loves that diversity. And likewise, cities can be amazing places. I think they can be used as tools for God because this, when you're condensed, when you're tightly condensed, things can spread. Bad things and good things. Bad news and good news. That's why the Apostle Paul went to cities, significant cities, global cities, port cities, or news. It was a strategy that he had. One writer said it this way, culture and technology of a city magnify and refine the human capacity for both good and evil. They can even predispose to one or the other, but they do not create the capacity. In other words, the city doesn't create bad people. Bad people be, create a bad city. People whose hearts turn from God and turning away from God, they're going to build it. So it's not really just about the architecture or the street design, though I'm not sure who designed our streets. But that's a different, that's a different issue altogether, right? It's, 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 the, it's the heart. And what we see here is that Cain City, Enoch, 
is not built with any reference to God at all. Timothy Keller, who established a church in New York, a global city, would say this, through cities, Christians have changed history and culture by winning the elites and identifying deeply with the poor. Hmm, it's good. So how are we to live in cities? Now, Baton Rouge is not that big of a city, right? It's kind of an urban sprawl. It's not, you don't feel like super, you know, big city. But how are we to live? I want to look at two Old Testament passages that help us. One from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet to Israel that said, hey, you guys need to straighten up and turn back to God or he's going to discipline you. Hey, you need to straighten up and turn back to God or he's going to discipline you. He's going to bring the nation of Babylon down to discipline you and he's going to take you away because God can do that. That's exactly what happened. And, and the, the Israelites were exiled in Babylon. And in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, through the prophet, God says to the people this, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Isn't that the case? Isn't that the case where we live? Don't we pray that there would be solutions to the crime? Don't we pray for those that are in authority, our mayor, our police, our firefighters, our first responders? Isn't that why we pray for those who govern us, that there'd be peace in our state and prosperity? Because when it prospers, we prosper. Well, Timothy Keller was also asked, hey, is that Old Testament model, is that applicable to the church today? Because we're not in exile. And he says, no, wait, we are in exile. This isn't our home. This isn't the home of the Christian. We're just, we're aliens here. That's what Peter would call us. He said, yes. We're dispersed all over the place from Acts chapter 2 when, when all the nations of the world were gathered together. They went back out, back home. Yeah, we're very diverse. So yes, it is applicable. My second uh, Old Testament passage is from the prophet Jonah. Little book, four chapters, worth the read. Jonah was asked by God to do something he didn't want to do. Has that ever happened to you? Hey, I need you to do this. And Jonah said, no. Hey, I need you to do this. And Jonah said, oh, uh-uh. I need you to do this. And Jonah said, you know what? I'm going to go the other way. Which way do you want me to go? You want me to go that way? I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go a long, far way away from you. Anyway, Jonah was asked to take the good news of God to the capital city of Nineveh, an arch enemy, a really rugged, rough, horrible people to take it to the capital city of Nineveh, I mean, Assyria, Nineveh. And Jonah said, I don't like those people. They should die. And if I go and I tell them about your grace, they're going to turn to you, and I don't want that. Well, through a series of amazing events, God got Jonah's attention, which is what God does. Again, you read the whole story, Fisher included. And um, when he gets to Nineveh, he preaches, and people respond. And he gets mad. He gets mad, and he starts complaining. And at the very end, God says, uh, excuse me, man. <laughs> That's my paraphrase. Chapter 4, verse 11, God's heart on display. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and they also have so many animals? 
Should I not be concerned about a group of people that don't know right from wrong, let alone left from right? Come on, Jonah. And we could say the same thing as we live in the city. Should we not care about the city, pray that it prosper instead of just push it away? And we're called to live sent, to live, take the gospel where we work, play, and live. Take the gospel, uh, live, go somewhere else with the gospel or go where the gospel's not. That's what we're talking about and praying for. It seems like the challenge are laborers, people willing to go. It seemed like that was the challenge with with Jonah, and it's often the challenge with us. Our cities can look very impressive. They have com comforts, luxuries, advances, but it all falls apart if it's not built on a humanity that has a heart for God. It will in in inevitably crumble. And then what else do we see in this? Is not only do they build cities and cultures in defiance to God, they redefine reality. Limic. They defiantly redefine, redefining of reality is how they're going to seek security and significance. What do I mean by that? Lemek had two wives. We're just barely away from Adam and Eve and God's design that Jesus reaffirms that marriage is between a man and a woman, not a man and two women. He introduces polygamy, which is going to be throughout the Old Testament. It's never straight up condemned. It's just shown in its true colors, which is awful. There's problem after problem after problem. Some say that inherent in polygamy is its own curse. You have more than one mother-in-law. Mm, I know, just making sure you're with me. Hey guys, don't laugh too loud. You're gonna give yourself away. There's a couple of this, uh, yeah. I don't, I, he may have married sisters, I don't know. Seems like he's going from A to Z, Otto to Zella. But he says, hey look, I, I'm not playing by the rules. I'm going to redefine reality. Is this not our current day situation? I mean, it's, it's, these are the headwaters. I'm going to define what I want to define as right and wrong, and I'm going to build what I build for myself. I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it in defiance of you. I'll initiate. I will build. I'll take care of it. And, hmm. and then you begin to see it play out in the next generation. And parents and grandparents start saying the same thing. Oh, the kids, the kids, the kids. I want to share something with you that somebody shared about the youth culture. Here it is. Our youth now love luxuries. They have bad manners and contempt for authority. They show disrespect for their elders, and they, have no, and they love to chatter instead of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not servants of their household. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up their food, and terrorize their teachers. And all the teachers said, Amen. Who said this and when? Socrates. 425 B.C. Why do I include it? It's real simple. The world we live in is the world that everybody's lived in. Right, that you might want to get that. Um, <laughs> might be important. Uh, so that's my point. It started with Cain, and it's been a it's been an issue ever since. It affects uh, all of our reality. And so the challenge that we face today as Christians living in the world around us is not a new challenge for people who have chosen to follow God. 
But not only do, do, do they you know, build cities and cultures, not only do they redefine reality, but there's a passionately justifying power of, of violence in verses 23 through 25. It says this, Limic said to his wives, Adah and Zella, listen to me, wives of Limic. I love how he refers to himself in the third person. Hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Limic is avenged 70 times seven. Wow, there you have it. If Cain can do it, I can do it. Some, I, a young guy offended me, it seems, that he was dealing with an offense, and what did he do? He just killed him over it. And he's written a song about it. It's an old song. You can find it on almost any radio station or sing-along at any pub in the world. I'm living my life like I want. And if you don't like it, come talk to me. and We can settle this outside. It's just over the top. And he's bragging about 77-fold. Uh, hmm. Jesus would use that same phrase, talking about forgiveness as opposed to vengeance. Christopher Walken said this about the song, it is the rancid organ origin of all hate-filled, violent, misogynistic, bombastic, aggressive, xenophobic lyrics of our age and of every age. Yeah, he's singing it loudly. And so this is, this is our world. It was his world, it's our world. And our challenge is to be in the world, but not of it. That's our challenge. As Christians, we are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're supposed to be here, but not of it. So, and it, this is difficult. Let's just be clear straight up. This is difficult. And as we attempt to do that, let me just share some of the ways that I've seen people respond. I'm going to describe the extremes and appeal to the middle. The extreme is, the first one is, I'm just going to reject the world as culture and all of its advances. Anything that is positively advancing, whether it's technology or art, I'm just going to reject it. And there's two ways that happens, one passive and one aggressive. The, the passive way is I'm just going to avoid the world. I'm going to slowly extract myself from it. I'm not going to listen to the music. I'm not going to watch the movies. I'm not going to read the books. I'm not going to read the periodicals. I'm not going to go online. I'm just going to slowly put myself into a cave. I'm not going to have any non-Christian friends. I'm just going to separate myself. I don't think that's the appropriate response, but that's a passive way of rejecting it. The active way of rejecting it is hating the culture, raging against the culture, going on social media to complain about social media and what's all wrong with it. And I hope everybody's listening. I've got a bone to pick. And we've, we see this type of rejection, either passively or actively. And actually, it's... It's, it's very attractive. I just excuse myself. I'll get my holy huddle. And yet, it seems like God wants us in the middle. What's the other extreme? <laughs> the other extreme is just to embrace the world. Just take it all in. Everything about it. I'm just going to be just like it. I immerse myself in it until I, there's no, you can't tell any difference from me and anybody else. And the problem is when the church becomes just like the world, the church no longer has anything to offer the world. Except, you know, the same trinkets and the things that the church does, I mean, the world does. Hmm. Jesus warned against that. He said, 
What good is it if someone gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? <coughs> this great question. Hmm, excuse me. <coughs> the third way, the middle way. Thank you. She's fine in so many ways. That's what happens when I get off script. Sorry. Pay for that later, I know. Sorry about that. Um, where was I? Oh, the middle way. Thank you. The way of redemption. The way of redemption. Why do I say there's a middle way? Because we're left here. Kelsey read it. My, here's Jesus' prayer. My prayer, he prayed for us before he died. He prayed for the disciples that were with him and for the disciples that would follow us. My prayer is that you do not take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. When his disciples said, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? He gave us a model prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And in it, it says, lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one. And that's what he's praying. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. He wants us to be here and to live a life that's honoring to him and present with others. Why do I put it that way? Because he came here. He came here completely holy. He wasn't contaminated by us. He was living as unto the Lord among us. And it didn't, that's what he came for. So it's calling us to be and do the same. Paul would say, you know what? Think of yourselves as ambassadors. If you're an ambassador from country A, you're to live in country B. You're to take the priorities and the principles of country A and represent them in country B. But you're not to become a citizen of country B. You're not to become so well-liked there that you just fit in without thinking about it. It's very different. So we are to, to live in this world and not be like it. We're to live sent. And so here's some questions I have for you, because this is hard. This is hard. I think one of our, one, the easy way to go is to avoid or condemn. And usually our, condemn, our condemnation is so full of self-righteousness that it just feels like and is bitter. What about living in the middle? So here's some questions, just for reflection. What have you received from the word world unintentionally? What have you picked up? What perspective, what worldview, what way of thinking have you picked up that is no longer gospel-centered, but worldly-centered? It happens so subtly, right? It's a great question, and you may not be able to answer it because like the slow drift that we can all go through, you need to hold it up against the Word of God. That'll bring clarity. I go, my, oh, my opinion's changed there. Like that's, that's, how you, that's how you check it. That's how you sanctify. To sanctify means to make holy. It means to set apart unto God. I'm going to leave them here in the world. I want you to protect them from the evil one as you grow them and mature them. What have you received from the world unintentionally? You've heard the phrase, if you lie down with dogs, you're going to get up with fleas. All right? I'm not calling your friends dogs or my friends dogs. I'm not saying dogs are a bad thing. We have some and we love our dogs. What I'm saying is there is an intimacy that you can get down on the ground with the dog and curl up next to it. And there's an intimacy in the world. You can get down in the dirt with the world and curl up next to it and pet it on the head, right? 
and you're too close. And then you get up and you go, oh my gosh, maybe a good indicator. We could go through some particulars, but here's what I've noticed in my life and in others. The urgent assumes top spot over the important when I am too much in the world. The temporal eclipses the eternal. I'm more worried about what's happening here, only here. The superficial and the trivial become paramount, and I get anxious over what's not going to last rather than anxious and prayerful about what's going to be eternal. I focus on things that don't change or direct the heart, my heart or your heart. I don't focus there. I focus on little things, first world problems. And God's asking me to focus on the gospel and what it does and how it changes. What is it that changes the human heart? Well, the gospel does. The Word of God does. The people of God do. The Spirit of God does. And have I, have I immersed myself enough in that that I can live in this world of salt and light without walking one way or the other in the wrong direction? Mm. Here's the second question. What have you rejected from the world that could be redeemed? What have you rejected from the world that could be redeemed? It's a great question. We all know what cancel culture is. Sadly, too many Christians have adopted it as a way to deal with culture. I'm going to cancel you, and I'm going to declare it. I'm going to keep talking about the fact that I've canceled you. It is, it is judgment. That's what it is. It's judgment and then eradication. It's not redemption. But what happens is we start grouping people together, ideas together, People that act differently, vote differently, think differently. And when we get them into a nice little ball, we reject the whole thing. One of the things that's important to realize as Jesus walked this earth is he didn't combat culture. He confronted people. People create the culture. But if the persons change, the culture will change. That's not to say that our things are not worth addressing in our culture. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying his priority was the heart of people. It allowed him to go in different places. He was asked a couple times to speak about the state, the oppressive state of Rome and paying taxes. And he would, but he seemingly sidestepped it and said, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. And it's, it, it happens all too quickly that we can reject what needs to be redeemed. I had a wake-up call oh, a number of years ago now. Um, I had an opportunity to go to New Orleans, one of the missionaries down there, and um, they wanted, uh, we'd met a, a young rapper, and I didn't know much about rap. I'd kind of had it into a category of music that I wanted to just kind of cancel, reject. I didn't understand it. I probably still don't understand it. Well, we got down there and it was pouring down rain, one of these deluges we hadn't seen in a while, and we were handing out flyers because this young rapper was going, to, was going to perform and we wanted to bring the neighborhood there together. We had two people stop and said, you guys don't belong here. You don't look like this neighborhood and y'all need to leave. Well, the fellow we were with, his name, his name is High, and he doesn't leave, so we didn't leave. And we, and we got it all together, and I'd never been to a rap concert. I'd not listened to a lot of rap, and I wasn't really sure how this was going to go. It's raining so hard, I just don't think it's going to work. 
there was a place in New Orleans at the time called A Thousand Pieces of Chicken. And we bought A Thousand Pieces of Chicken. It's no longer there. Katrina took it out. And um, when we had it set up, and there was the mic, there were the speakers and speakers and speakers and speakers. And this young man heard the downbeat of some pre-recorded music and he leapt off the stage with such energy and passion. And he began to speak in a way that I could, couldn't imagine. And everything he said was intricate, clear doctrine. <laughs> And people came by the droves to listen. I would love to have him come back. He's performed here. He's performed a couple places. But like people do, they get popular and they don't take your phone calls anymore. That was Lecrae. Multi-Grammy winner. And I just sat there stunned because what he was screaming was, this neighborhood can be redeemed. And I went in so reluctantly. Third question. Who has God sent you, to, sent you to be around that doesn't know Jesus? If God has left us here, given us a purpose to be salt and light, well, who around you? You're around so, so many people. I am not. And I know, I know there's some places that are easier to work and be a Christian than others. Some places like politics, like the academy, the university, you will be really criticized if you hold the banner of Jesus too high. You might get fired. And I know that that exists because we talk. I talk to you. But who has God put you next to that you could say, Lord, I want to I I, I, I wanna be a witness here through my words, through my actions, through my confessions. Please hear me, Christian. The perfect person is not the one that's most endearing. It's the one who can apologize when they do wrong. Does that make sense? You don't have to be perfect. But can you say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I shouldn't have lost my temper. I should have been here when I said I would. And then the next time you are. That's a sermon for a different... Sorry. What do we have to offer? We have hope. We have hope in Jesus. And this is where the story ends. Seth's lineage, there was hope from God. Verses 25 and 26. Adam made love to his wife again. We're back to Adam and Eve. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Seth, appointed. It's from God. That's what his name means, appointed. God has granted me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. At the time, the people began to call on the name of the Lord. Just because Abel was dead did not mean God's work among people was dead. If you find John Wesley's tombstone, his epitaph reads, God buries his workmen, but he carries on his work. What the group of people that are over here have seen as they left their beloved hospital in northern Cameroon after a lifetime is the work continues. And in some ways, in amazing ways, am I not right? In ways that you just prayed about. God's not done, and so God brings hope. There's a, new, there's a new player, Seth, the appointed one, and his son, Enosh, which means mortal. It's like Seth is saying, you know what? Hey, we're not God. We're going to die. We know this, but we're going to live under God. 
We're going to submit to him. We're not going to build. We're going to stand in defiance of what Cain has built, and we're going to build something different. We're going to acknowledge him. And then the people started to call on the name of the Lord. So if you're a Christian and you're trying to live in the world and not be of it, let me give you a great strategy to do almost all the time every day. Call on the name of the Lord. Because here's the battle I face, and I'm not in your shoes. Am I going to go too far into the world? God, give me direction. Am I going to pull back from the world? God, give me compassion. Lord, I really actually hate these people and wish they weren't here. Jonah, to, no, no, I need a transformation of my heart. I need, I need, I call, I'm calling on him constantly. Or there's this sequence of calling on the Lord. Lord, I've gone too far and I know it. I got flea bites all over me and I don't know how to get out. Call on the name of the Lord. I have, rec I have retreated so far in. I've been at this job for seven years and nobody even knows I'm a Christian. I don't know how to, I don't know how to change that. Call on the name of the Lord. That's, that's, that's what they began to do. And of course, if you're in the world and you don't know Jesus and, you, and you're wondering, oh my gosh, here's what you need to know about the world system. It does not love you. It does not want your good. It wants to destroy you, and it will destroy you. And when it does, and it spits you out onto the curb, it's not going to turn around and say, are you okay? And if you've lived long enough, you know. It'll chew you up, and it'll spit you out, and it has no regard for you all the time telling you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And it doesn't love you. And so if you're there and you're wondering, how in the heck do I get out of this? The same way. Call on the name of the Lord. Why is it then that they begin to call on the name of the Lord? Because then there were two, there were diverging lines. This line had gone off, Cain's line. And Seth's family said, you know what? We're not going that way. We're deliberately, we're going we're gonna to change things. In our family this week, we're going to hold hands and we're going to pray before the day ends. We're going to hold hands and we're going to pray before the day starts. When we bow our heads, we're not just going to pray and thank God for the food. We're going to pray for each other. We're going to look for times that we speak of God in our family. We're going to take a different trajectory. That's what they're doing. I want to end with this verse out of Galatians. Paul planted these churches in what we know now as Turkey. And they were so transformed by the gospel. But then people said, you know what? You really need to be more Jewish to be Christian. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. And but you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this and this, and God's going to be really impressed, and that's how you're going to be saved. And Paul's like, no, wait a minute, hold up. That's not what we went over. You're saved by grace through faith. And so he writes him a little letter, which he's prone to do, which we have. It's called the book of Galatians. And in it, he's going to get down to business really quick, and he's going to confront them. But before he does, he says this in the first few verses. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer over us today. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Jesus came to rescue you from this world and me. And so if you feel like you don't know how to get out, he's the way out. 
He can clean you up. He can dust you off. He can forgive. He can repair. And He can set you on a new course. His course. Hmm. Let's pray together. Father God, thank You for this beautiful um, story. Thank You for MCWA's history in our church and the men and women who gave their life to the work to see other men and women come to know you. We pray, Lord, that we would be a church known for being lovingly compassionate, bold and brave in our service to those who are different from us who don't know you. Lord, I pray that we would be people that are eager to speak of you and not embarrassed by you or ashamed of what you've done in our life. And Lord, I pray for those here that just feel overwhelmed that they might call out to you. You can do it where you're seated. You can do it on the way home. You can do it tonight, tomorrow, in every one of those times. Jesus Christ came to give his life for you. Trust in him. Jesus Christ rose from the dead for you. Trust in him. Jesus Christ will come again. Be ready for him. Trust in his name. Trust in who he is and what he said he would do. Put your faith in him. We pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.